Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came in humility and yet is now exalted. We pray that we would ever remember that our exaltation does not depend upon us, but upon the works of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is bringing us from this life into your glory. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. One of the most discouraging things for me as a clergyman is when you see other clergy misuse their position. Whether it be using the pulpit to pump out pop psychology and self-help advice, or using their position for their own glory so that they glory and not the Lord, or using their position as a pastor to abuse others. It can hurt and is discouraging to see this happen. And, like, and likewise, it's even more discouraging to see those people flourish while it seems to be, well, it seems that I work so hard and things don't flourish. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's not very relatable. I've never been in that position, but I think perhaps you have. If you've ever been in the world for more than a couple hours, you've seen people that get ahead by lying or stealing or cheating, perhaps even lying about you or stealing from you or cheating you. And it's hard to believe, perhaps, but I've seen this happen even amongst the clergy and to myself, and it's heartbreaking. And just as it's heartbreaking for you when you've seen this happen in your workplace or in your community. But Jesus gives us hope today that you might not immediately see in our gospel passage, but is directly related to this discouragement. Despite the positive interaction that he just had last week with the scribe, right, that happens right before this, where Jesus Sort of where Jesus and the scribe have this really positive interaction, and he seems to even give this scribe some accolades. Jesus wants to go a little further this week and point out a theological problem that the scribes have. As he continues to teach in the temple, he says, Well, how is it that the scribes can say that the Christ is the Son of David? The issue of who Christ would be is a major question for the people of these times. They're looking and expecting a Messiah to come. And it's right that he would be of the lineage of David. This was predicted that eventually one would come to replace David. But Jesus wants to challenge this a little bit. Because he thinks that perhaps this this part of of the lineage of David is overemphasized. And so he reads from Psalm, or cites Psalm 110, verse 1. This psalm starts with this and says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. To really fully get a grasp of why he's pulling from Psalm 110, we actually have to kind of go back and take a look at the whole of 110. The inscription above 110, or the beginning of Psalm 110, is, in fact, a psalm of David. And David continues, The Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings of, on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the, he will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. Psalm 110 is is quite interesting because it is in fact messianic in that it predicts the coming of the Lord into the world. But it does more than just point to the Christ, point out who Christ will be. It also seems to point to the end of the world, to the time when God will judge his world and make all things right. The psalm looks forward to to what Christ will do. Christ will gather his people. He will issue forth justice. And it points to how God will bring about peace on earth through his Christ. The psalm reveals a lot about what Christ will do and who he is. But it confuses this popular title for Messiah, which is son of David. And we've seen it used as we've continued our way through Mark. Again and again, people call Jesus the son of David, acknowledging that they think that he will be the Christ or that he is the Christ. But Jesus challenges this in asking, how, how can the Messiah be called the son of David? What's really interesting is that after this point, Mark doesn't again use that title for Jesus. So this is the last time that the son of David comes up in Mark's gospel account. And it is right that Jesus is the son of David and that through his lineage, through his lineage it works down to Joseph until Jesus is born as his stepson. But more rightly understood, the Messiah should be understood as more than the son of David. He should be understood as the Lord, thoroughly exalted, the one who will be seated at the right hand of the Father. And because Christ came humbly, it's easy to miss that. It's easy to miss that he will be exalted. Especially in this day and age, when so many want to read the gospel accounts of Jesus and try to demythologize his life and his actions. They want to make salvation a bloodless salvation. But part of the gospel call, especially if, though, if you tempt with demythologizing, is to realize that Christ is exalted. Christ reigns in glory even today. That through the cross and resurrection, Christ is glorified because he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Christ's exaltation does two things for us today. It reminds us again and again of his glory. And it reminds us of the reality that this glory is a part of your eternal hope. You can have hope 
because Christ is glorified. He then continues on and makes a warning. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace, who have the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the feast, who devours widows' houses and make pretense in long prayers. He uses the scribes as an example, but they can really be just about anywhere, anyone. Beware of the politicians who wear $3,000 suits and take lots of bribes under the table. Beware of the Hollywood stars who like to be honored, but don't listen to anyone else. Beware of televangelists in 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 their Bentleys and want all of your money. Beware of the pastor or priest who is seeking his glory, not the glory of God, who seeks their reward today, who seeks honor today. Beware. But this warning isn't meant only to be external. This warning is also meant to be internal for each and every one of us. This warning is meant to be an internal warning for yourself. Watch for your own soul. Watch your own desires, your own temptations to what to exalt yourself. It's a real temptation. We want to keep up with the Joneses. We want to keep up our appearances. I see this with myself as I overanalyze my own failures, but I need to remind myself to seek God's glory alone. Likewise, each of you need to be reminded of this call as well. Seek the glory of God. He refers to a type of garment, a robe or a long flowing robe as it's translated here. It's actually the word for stole. But what's most interesting, what's far more interesting than that, is as we read through the New Testament, it only comes up a half a dozen times or so, or a dozen times or so, and in this story is the only time that it's used negatively. Elsewhere, it's talked in one of two cases, either as the garments that angels seem to wear or the robe that will be put upon the saints at the end of time. The next time Mark will use it is when he talks about the young man who greets the women at the tomb. Perhaps you remember this, where they run to the tomb to try and care for Jesus' body, and they're greeted by a young a, a man in a robe, a young man in a robe, who tells them that Jesus isn't there. Luke uses it to describe the father who put uh, describe what the father puts upon the prodigal son. This is what he takes the prodigal son's rags off and he puts this robe on them. But most importantly, it comes up five times in the book of Revelation. Each and every time, it is used to describe what the saints will be dressed in. This warning, as we see this word in context, becomes all the more clear. The honor of the robes is God's to give, not ours to take. God has provided for his saints white robes of purity, robes of his glory, And for his glory. God has provided these robes so that you may rest in him. 
the robe of glory is not given, is not earned. It is given freely through Christ because Christ was first glorified. And the warning, of course, continues. These, these people want the best seats and places of honor. They take advantage of the helpless. They can be tempting. It can be tempting for us to take honor and to take advantage of people as well. And so the warning becomes all the more clear. Do not elevate yourself. For us as Anglicans, there's another element of warning that sometimes people like the feeling of power that can come with vestments. But vestments play an important symbol. The black cassock reminds us that death of death in sin. <clears throat> it reminds us of our spiritual death when we sin. Likewise, the white surplus is the robe of Christ's atoning blood. The white reminds us of the gift of Christ's coming glory. It can, of course, be tempting to wear them in pride, to exalt oneself, to make vestments of fashion statement, or to wear them to draw attention to oneself. But rightly understood, vestments should humble us and remind us of our spiritual death outside of Christ and our borrowed glory from him, glory that has been given from the Father through the Son to each and every one of God's people. The final warning about the scribes comes as this. They who do these things receive the greater condemnation. Perhaps a part of the hope of this whole passage, a part of the hope of this whole passage is this, that the glory that is stolen on earth, that is taken for one's self, will be lost and destroyed. The glory that is freely given from God will only be realized more deeply and profoundly in Christ's return. By now, as we get to the third of these little lessons this morning, you know where this final story is going. This scene is the final scene of this day as Jesus prepares to leave the temple with his disciples. It's the final of his teaching at the temple on this day where Jesus and his disciples sit and watch people put money in the offering, book, offering box. It's important to note that he doesn't denigrate the rich. He doesn't shame the rich for being wealthy. You can be extremely wealthy and a God-fearing person. You can be extremely poor and give God the glory with all of your life. It can also be the total opposite. You can be extremely rich, selfish, miserly, and hateful. You can be poor and proud and entitled. What matters is what you do with the gifts from God. And that's what this widow exemplifies for us. She gives all of God's gifts back to God. In the previous section, Jesus warns the leaders, don't, don't take the widow and trample her down. Don't force her even more into poverty. But the widow does this of her own free will because she desires to glorify God. And by doing so, we see how God will lift her up. God will provide for her. It is God's 
at eternal exaltation that will be denied to the proud and given to the lowly. Every time we gather for evening prayer, or perhaps you read evening prayer at home and pray it, we recite the Magnificat. The Magnificat, which which echoes Hannah's song, reminds us of this theme that, that echoes throughout all of Scripture. The Magnificat, which reads as follows, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For the, he that is mighty hath magnified me. And holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him throughout all generations. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat, and hath exalted the humble and the meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He, remembering his mercy, hath opened his servant Israel, as he promised to our forefathers Abraham and his seed forever. The Magnificat, as I mentioned, echoes Hannah's song, who prayed and prayed and prayed for a child, and it came in the form of Samuel, which you can find in 1 Samuel 2. But in both of these cases and other places throughout Scripture, these women prayed and prayed that God would come and give them justice. That God would give justice to the lowly and to the hurting and to those that the world has oppressed. The widow, Mary, and Hannah all stand to remind you, your hope is not in this world. Your hope is not in the material gifts which you possess. Your hope is in God's coming glory. This afternoon, many of you may go home and watch the Super Bowl. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you that's bad. But I am going to give you a little bit of homework. Pay attention as you watch how they, they show the crowds, but also how, they, how the ads are, are displayed. What these ads tell to you. Pay attention to the subtle messaging and how many say, you need this thing and you'll be happier, you'll be more content, you'll be more at peace. Just take time and pay attention to that because advertisers play on your hope. They try to make you think that this thing will make your life better. Media does something similar. In order to tantalize you into watching something, they say, oh, all hope is lost, or things are terrible and you need to know why they're so terrible. Let us make it clear and help you live in this fear. The devil likewise wants the church to think that it has been crushed. But it has not been. You have been given an incredible hope. Not in your wealth, not in your relationships, not in what you possess, not in your status. Your hope is in the exaltation of Christ that has already happened. Your hope is in the reality that Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father and that he will come again. 
not only to judge the quick and the dead, but to exalt his people. My friends, today, do not put your hope in the glory of this world, but rest in the white robe of God's glory, which he has freely given you in Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.